0: There was not much mistaking the symbolism of the venue. NATO held its 2023 summit in Vilnius, capital of a country wedged between the Russian exclave of Kaliningrad and the Russian client state of Belarus, and which was once itself a reluctant constituent of the Soviet Union. Walking around town before the summit began, it was clear that Lithuania feels Ukraine's current ordeal profoundly. The three Baltic states, requiring no instruction in the dangers of Russia's imperial delusions, have been Ukraine's most hawkish supporters. In Vilnius, Ukraine's blue and yellow flag flew from balconies, windows, buses, cars and domestic pets. 30-plus years since the Soviet Union collapsed nearly 20 since the Baltic states joined NATO, it is still a pretty big deal when Air Force One touches down. But everybody understood who the headliner of this summit was. President Volodymyr Zelensky of Ukraine spoke to a hefty crowd in downtown Vilnius before taking centre stage at the summit, overshadowing even such a colossal development as the accession of long-neutral Sweden. This special episode was recorded at the Vilnius summit. Is Ukraine's path to membership now clear enough? What does go on behind the scenes at one of these things? And how can a small country use a big event to advertise itself? This is the Foreign Desk. This summit is already historic before it has started, because we have now in place Swedish membership. Sweden will become a full-fledged member of this alliance. That's good for Sweden, it's good for Turkey,
1: and it's good for the whole of NATO. We couldn't have a better host for the NATO summit than Lithuania at this incredibly consequential moment. You are a Baltic country a democracy within close proximity to Russia. You understand the realities of current security environment in Europe better than most. It is
2: a commitment of Canada to, yes, bolster the eastern flank of Europe, but also to make sure that we send a clear message to our friends and allies that when NATO calls, we answer.
0: Our commitment to Ukraine will not weaken we will stand for liberty and freedom today, tomorrow, and for as
3: long as it takes. The outcome of the NATO summit in Vilnius is a very much needed and meaningful success for Ukraine. And I'm grateful to all leaders in NATO countries for very practical and unprecedented support, considering the case of our relations support for Ukraine.
0: You're listening to The Foreign Desk. I'm Andrew Muller. Our first guest is Nikolai Denkov, since last month the Prime Minister of Bulgaria. I began by asking about his recent meeting with President Zelensky in Sofia earlier this month and what was discussed.
4: It was very interesting to see that we were discussing military issues and military aid and so on. But on the other hand, all the time he was changing the topic and transforming it into the human problems, human catastrophe, the humanitarian aspect of this war. And this is something that really the people appreciate and understand that Okay, that the war has its human cost.
0: I mean, the visit, as you know, attracted an amount of global attention because he gave your president quite a going over on live television. There is disagreement, I think, between you and President Radev, who has been very unkeen on large scale assistance to Ukraine. How difficult a relationship is that to manage?
4: Let me put it in this way. what we do, and what I presented as positions of Bulgaria today and yesterday, this is the position of the Parliament, this is the position that is of the Council of Ministers, so this is the official position of Bulgaria. The President has, has the right for his position, and I really appreciate when Vladimir Zelensky was asked about the position of the Bulgarian President, he said, OK, I'm a guest here, so I respect all the positions, And from this viewpoint, I think I should also respect the institutional position of the presidency. But Bulgaria is a parliamentary republic, so the official position of the country is what we presented today and yesterday.
0: But is there still a significant pro-Russian constituency either among Bulgaria's people or perhaps as a consequence among Bulgaria's politicians? There is a lot of
4: history coming back many even centuries ago, if you like. And that's why there is some sentiment that's not very typical for other countries. So on the other hand, we should explain better to the people that when there is an invasion, there is an aggressor, and there is a victim of this aggression, first, the human values require that we help the victim, and second, it is for the sake of security of Europe to help Ukraine because this would also keep the risks, the danger, far away from the borders of Bulgaria. So, there is a practical element and there is a human element that we should explain better to our people. I could say that there is a lot of propaganda in our media and that's why sometimes it's quite obscure to see what are the, the real values that are followed by Europe and by the other countries here in the summit. So. One of the tasks that we as government have is to clarify better why we support Ukraine, why we are members of NATO. It might sound a bit weak position that we have at that moment, but I think there are reasons for this and we should just work Harder to explain to the people why we have this position at the political level.
0: But what part of your view of it do you think is not registering with that constituency, though? Because it does seem, I think, to most of Europe like a fairly open and shut case. Russia has launched an unprovoked war of aggression against its neighbor. That pro-Russian sentiment you mentioned, even in the media, is it entirely organic or is Russia actually deliberately doing something to amplify it?
4: I think it's a combination of the two. So when there is some sentiment that is coming back, as I said, in history, in culture, there was a lot of mutual influence along the centuries, then it is much easier as compared to the other countries to use the propaganda and to say, okay, listen this. War is not just aggression, it was provoked in some way and so on and so forth. So I think it's more a combination of the two.
0: But how pernicious do you think the Russian influence is? I mean obviously as you know, at least one MP, Delian Pitsky, has been sanctioned by the US under Magnitsky Act. There's various rumors continually doing the rounds about Kostadin Kostadinov's revival party generally. Do you think there are Bulgarian MPs in your parliament who are actually on the hook to Russia? Well, there are two parties
4: that i could say quite freely and quite openly explain that they're pro-russian and they're a minority in the parliament but they're vocal one of them is a very old party more than 100 years of existence so that's why they are hurt by the population and as i said we should just do our work to explain better to the people where is the logical understanding why we should act in this way and why we act in this way and fight with the propaganda with on one side with the logical arguments but on the other hand also fighting with the fears of the people because what we see is that these two parties very often they just generate different kind of fears of the people because it's an easier way emotionally to get their attention.
0: What have you made of what has been offered to Ukraine at this summit. President Zelensky's views seem to have shifted somewhat over the last couple of days. He did arrive all guns blazing, calling the communique absurd, and today he seems to be suggesting that he understands that this is probably the best he can do in the circumstances. Do you think Ukraine should have been offered a more definite timeline?
4: No, I think it is impossible to give a timeline under these circumstances, because we don't know what will happen with the war, when it will end, how it will end. So from this viewpoint, for me, the decision of the NATO Council and what is written in the communique is quite logical. This is what is possible today. So that's why I think the reaction of Volodymyr Zelensky was more emotional, but when he understood what what are the real reasons, and also what is the status of this NATO-Ukraine Council, Then he understood what is the meaning of these decisions. So I think he understood at the end.
0: Do you think there's an amount of nervousness among Western European nations about the idea of what Ukraine's arrival in NATO and potentially the EU will mean? Because that will mean an enormous shift of the balance of power East, you will have certainly just between Ukraine and Poland, two mighty, heavily armed, extremely large countries who are going to want a much bigger say than they're presently having. And Ukraine in particular will think quite rightly, we just fought a war for you people. I think that there was a very good
4: discussion that there are different types of risks. Obviously, Russia now is creating a significant risk from the East, so it is quite normal to have defense forces that are sufficiently powerful on this flank. On the other hand, there are discussions about other risks that come from different other regions. Let's say, for example, there was a discussion that we should pay more attention to what is happening in Africa and that we should work harder to cooperate with African countries. So I think there was a very balanced discussion that we should evaluate the risk properly and then we should act according to the level of the risk that we see. I don't see any tension from this viewpoint.
0: I just want to come back finally to that point you made earlier about how your government and I think you could probably extend the argument to other governments need to do a better job of explaining what is in play here and explaining the stakes how do you overcome the obvious inbuilt resistance to this because you you get the people who are mired in the other way of thinking basically replying well that's what you would say
4: my impression is that people like me, we try to be very logical and to use logical arguments and this is not necessarily the best approach in this case. We should combine these logical arguments with the level of emotion that will touch the souls of these people so they'll understand the logical arguments and the emotions that are related to these logical arguments. So it's more difficult way to present your logical arguments but we have to do it, otherwise they don't hear us.
0: Is that an adjustment you can decide to make, though? I mean, I know you have a background in science and therefore in logic and reason. It's not necessarily the easiest change of gears, is it?
4: Yes, but that's why we have to work also with other people to combine the scientific approach with the people that understand better, the psychology, if you like, the people, the PR specialists. We still need these logical arguments, but we need to present them in a way in
0: which they will be heard much better than until now. That was the Prime Minister of Bulgaria, Nikolai Denkov. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. This is The Foreign Desk on Monocle Radio, and for a look at what actually goes on at a NATO summit behind the scenes, I spoke to Dr Benedetta Berti Alberti, head of policy planning at the office of the NATO Secretary-General. I began by asking what her first day at a NATO summit is like. Well,
5: in terms of a NATO summit, it really depends a lot what your function is. I would say the busiest people at NATO at a NATO summit, if everything goes well, are actually those that are doing the logistics, the organization, the protocol, making sure that all the leaders are in the room at the right time, that the seating order is correct, that the coffee is warm. Because the way NATO works is that... A lot of the decisions are negotiated and agreed in the weeks and months preceding to the summit. So it's actually quite rare in a NATO summit that you have an open decision that gets brought all the way to the leaders. In other words, if everything goes well, and most of the times it does, once the leaders meet, they are endorsed in approving the decisions that have been negotiated priorly. So everybody works more in policy. By the time the NATO summit starts, their work should normally be pretty much over. There's always last minute negotiations, but I also would say the decisions that are being negotiated in the weeks and months prior to the summit and they're endorsed and discussed by the leaders. Mm -hmm. This is really important because at the end of the day, you need to have the highest political buy-in for what we're doing. So I think the summit also helps us doing that, to really make it real for the political leadership. What are we agreeing? What does it mean for NATO to implement the biggest, largest transformation of its deterrence and defense posture in a generation? So it's also a way to build political ownership, which is, of course, so important because at the end of the day, the decisions need to be implemented nationally. And then it's about building solidarity. It's about showing transatlantic unity, which of course is always one of the main themes of the summits, I think, for the past 74 years. But in times of war, in times in which Russia's war of aggression against Ukraine is ongoing, is even more important to send a message of transatlantic resolve and solidarity. So it's a mix. It's a mix of politics, informal bilateral meetings, but also really showing up as the transatlantic family.
0: That family is now bigger than the transatlantic one. There's an extended Pacific family now. We have the leaders from Australia, New Zealand, South Korea, Japan here again, as they were at Madrid last year. Can we assume that now they're going to be regular guests at these things from here on?
5: Well, that I don't know exactly what the future will hold, but I would say that it's certainly a strong political signal that they are here two years in a row. It shows a few things. One, as you said, that NATO is really deepening both the strategic political dialogue and the practical cooperation with our Indo-Pacific partners. Too, I think that we are understanding more and more as on both sides, both on our sides as NATO allies, but also from our partners, of the many ways in which our security is interconnected and that the security developments in the Indo-Pacific do matter in the Euro-Atlantic and vice versa. And I think that's one of the reasons why we've seen such strong support from our Indo-Pacific partners to Ukraine. And that's why we are also thinking in terms of what is the broader signal that together as like-minded countries we send to potential authoritarian competitors and adversaries. And so I think there's much more awareness of how we have to stand together in a time of strategic competition and where there are more challenges, common challenges to the rules-based international order. So I don't know if this will mean that every single summit from here to eternity, they will participate, but I think this is part of a trend of closer cooperation that is certainly not ephemeral. I expect it to continue to go from strength to strength.
0: One item that did get taken off NATO's agenda in the last few weeks was the identity of the next Secretary-General because it has, of course, been decided that Jens Stoltenberg will go round again. Within NATO, was that decision kind of a relief given everything that's going on?
5: Well, I think that part of the rationale for that decision is very, very solid, and that is we are in the most complex security environment in generation. Uh, We are in the middle of a crisis because of Russia's war of aggression against Ukraine. So there is a very strong rationale for continuity. And of course, the Secretary General, since taking office in 2014, has shown nothing but the ability to really navigate these really turbulent waters with calm, with uh, with a steady hand and fostering that transatlantic consensus that is always really important. But in times of crisis, it's even more important and perhaps even more difficult to achieve. So I think from a staff perspective, there was definitely a sense of deep understanding for wanting to to have a leadership continuity in this time of crisis.
0: So how important coming out of this summit is going to be some absolutely clear path to membership for Ukraine? Uh, Because I know there's disagreement within NATO about how quickly and in what circumstances that might be able to occur. But it's important that there be no doubt after this summit, isn't it?
5: Well, I think what we can expect from this summit in terms of Ukraine, which of course is one of the key issues that are on the table for the leaders to discuss, is really, I would say, three parts. First, there's going to be a strong commitment to continue and scale up the practical support. And this is going to be with a multi-year framework, really looks not just at supporting Ukraine's self-defense today, but also at the future trajectory, how to contribute to longer-term deterrence for Ukraine by really investing in interoperability. So making sure that Ukraine's armed forces transition from Soviet-era equipment, legacy, doctrines, training to NATO interoperable. So that's certainly an important and concrete sign of long-term support to Ukraine and also something that brings Ukraine de facto closer to NATO. The second piece is the strength political support with the new NATO-Ukraine Council, where basically the 31 allies, soon to be 32 of NATO and Ukraine, will sit together as equals. So decision-making, crisis consultation, again, a really strong signal of bringing Ukraine closer to NATO. And then, indeed, I expect that we'll reaffirm What essentially has been said for many years, which is Ukraine will be a member of NATO in its rightful place, is in the Euro-Atlantic family, and I think this will be done practically by signaling. Well, for example, that some of the requirements that we had talked about as being a must before, like the Membership Action Plan, will no longer be a requirement. So I think when you take everything together, you will see a strong sign of political support for Ukraine, political support for Ukraine's trajectory and its future place in NATO.
0: That was Dr. Benedetta Berti Alberti, head of policy planning at the office of the NATO Secretary General. You're listening to The Foreign Desk on Monocle Radio. You're listening to The Foreign Desk with me, Andrew Muller. Vilnius very much embraced the NATO summit as an opportunity to sell itself. Please now join us for an improvised tour of the venue. This is the main press centre which is just this vast gigantic hangar with rows of tables at which journalists from all over the world are plugged in, overhanging us lots of iterations of the logo of this summit, the NATO logo, with the stylized version of Vilnius's signature guy waving a sword on horseback. I can say, compared with last year's summit in Madrid, they do seem to have provided slightly more coffee machines. That was a major, major bone of contention at the 2022 summit. The other difference between this and Madrid is that Lithuania, Vilnius in particular, has very much seen this as an opportunity to introduce itself to the world. They're aware that it's a relatively small capital of a relatively small country. The tote bags with which journalists were issued upon collecting their accreditation included a t-shirt which said I didn't know where Vilnius was but luckily the NATO summit was held there they're very very keen I think for the people who come here to come back at some point down here in the I guess this is the entrance lobby there is the virtual adventure which we should have a go at shortly and there's an especially intriguing exhibit here in the lobby which i think is billed as the scent of lithuania there is a chance here to sample a variety of local perfumes what we're looking at is a white sort of table looking thing with a hole in one end and three bottles on the top of it let's maybe talk about the bottles first what's in those
2: Yes, this is original smells of Lithuania, which is created of Lithuanian perfumers. This is like our concept of this event, Lithuania, an experience to share. So this is one of experience, what you can enjoy, it's smell.
0: Do you have a particular favorite from these three?
2: Yes, Juniper Magic. This is woody Picard signed will transport you to the tree lined path, sneaking through the deep and mystical forests. This is what is Lithuania about. If you can see, Lithuania is very green. We have a lot of forest, we have a lot of green in all the Lithuania and
0: let's try. give that a try. It is as if I am transported to tree-lined paths, snaking through deep and mystical forests. We did literally have to walk through a deep and mystical forest to get here from the bus stop.
2: So yeah, it's one of the things what you can also enjoy in our virtual reality. It will be also about the green nature, fields, lakes.
6: My name is Linas Jurkštas, and you just experienced a virtual reality artistic rendering of Lithuania. It's an experience for about 10 minutes to see the fantastical view of Lithuania.
0: There is a part of the sequence where you're in kind of a, a balloon ride, I guess, over Vilnius's beautiful old town, which is, I guess, to be expected and is something Lithuania should boast about, but it was striking that you placed a lot of importance on the forest
6: because we have loads of forests and Lithuanians like to go to forests and camping. Like, the first time I left when I was a student in Lithuania, it was really hard to find a place to camp. For example, I got a fine in Balkans, which should be the wildest part of Europe. I got a fine for putting a tent somewhere in the wilderness. So, yeah, it's, it's a Lithuanian thing.
2: And one more thing about the balloons, that Vilnius is one of the few capitals in Europe where you can fly over the capital with air balloon.
0: I've got to say, given my head for heights, a virtual balloon is the closest I'm ever, ever going to get. Seriously, there is not enough money. So far at least, what kind of responses to this exhibit have you had from visitors to the summit?
6: Positive, quite positive. I'm really happy, especially the outsiders from the southern part of Europe are really expressive. The northerners are a bit more conservative, but we hear really good squeaks and squeals from people.
0: This is outside the convention centre. There's a, a large, demountable tent which boasts such things as a media catering area and a media huddle area, though frankly I'm not sure I like any of my colleagues that much. There's flower beds planted alongside one side of the building and it's very much in keeping with the attention to detail that Vilnius has put into hosting this summit that the first two rows of flowers, when you look at them entire uh, blue on top of yellow the colors of the ukrainian flag they really haven't missed an opportunity to make that point i think we can cautiously draw some comparisons between the way vilnius has approached this versus the way madrid approached this last year and i mean absolutely no shade on madrid which is a fine city but i think madrid is a city which is quite used to having attention paid to it and the attitude from Madrid last year organises the catering, the security, everything. There was very much an undertow of, oh, for God's sake, if you must, but get it over with. Whereas Vilnius really does seem to be making an effort. The security is a lot more low-key than it was in Madrid. It's certainly a great deal friendlier. But I think a lot of that is to do with the fact that the reasons for this summit feel a lot more immediate and proximate and real to Lithuania than maybe they do to Spain, which is a lot further away from Russia. Lithuania, I think, is a country very conscious that what is happening to Ukraine in an easily imaginable parallel universe could have or perhaps still could one day happen to it. And it's very, very invested on the signal being sent by this summit being held in Vilnius. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. I'm Andrew Muller. Our next guest is Andre Benededzik, State Secretary for National and International Security in the Office of the Prime Minister of the Republic of Slovenia. He formerly served as the permanent representative of Slovenia to the UN and NATO, as well as Slovenia's ambassador to Russia. I began by asking him to outline Slovenia's priorities at this year's NATO
3: summit. Well, I mean, for us, the Western Balkans is always a very important issue on any agenda of NATO. And the fact that recently we have been witnessing the increase in tensions, especially in Kosovo, is something that is very much a source of worry for us. So we are glad that we also had an exchange about the situation there during the meeting of the NATO leaders, of course, in addition to other issues such as Ukraine. When it comes to Ukraine, Slovenia is also quite engaged. We are one of those countries that actually offered aid to Ukraine quite early.
0: Thinking about the Western Balkans, though, do you detect or suspect or worry about overt Russian inflammation of that situation in between Serbia and Kosovo in particular?
3: Well, when it comes to the Western Balkans, we like to say that that's a region where the challenges from the east and the challenges from the south intersect. So we have on the one hand, Russian meddling. And on the other hand, we also have the challenge of reintegrating foreign terrorist fighters. So in that sense, the Western Balkans remain an issue, a challenge. And it is important that members of the alliance keep that in mind.
0: Do you think though, looking at Ukraine, that still after 16 months of trying to understand this conflict, there's a a subtext to it that European countries further west uh, perhaps missing. I'm asking you particularly because you wrote a book called Russia and Slavdom a couple of years ago, and you kind of frame this conflict perhaps as a
3: sort of Slavic civil war? Well, this is an intra-Slavic conflict for mm-hmm. sure. And in that sense, what Moscow is doing is actually an anti-Slavic measure in the sense of denying another Slavic nation its own identity. And the fact that Moscow is now dealing with the rise of Russian nationalism, also among, for example, the Wagnerites, is something that Moscow has produced for itself. Moscow has been trying for years to differentiate between Russia and the rest of the Slavic world by saying that Russia is a civilization, that Russia is a country which has basically been able to go beyond its own ethnicity. But as we're seeing now, the war is actually increasing ethnic awareness and also increasing Russian nationalism, which is something that President Putin should be worried about.
0: You were Slovenia's ambassador to Moscow, I think, 2005 to 2008. When you think back to that period, does it strike you that there were perhaps opportunities missed, roads not taken? Did it have to be this way or was was Vladimir Putin's Russia always embarked on this kind of course?
3: Well, that particular period was a period of hope and of expectations, also because it was a period when President Medvedev took over. And what President Medvedev said during his inaugural speech is something that we all wanted to hear. He spoke about the rule of law. Uh, He spoke about uh, many things which are dear to uh, the hearts of the Western audience. And it also seemed that finally transition of power took place in Russia, which is why we were not paying any more attention at that time to some of the things that President Putin had said previously, including at the Munich Security Conference, including when it comes to the Conventional Forces in Europe Treaty, and also what he said at the NATO summit in Bucharest. So we thought that that actually belonged to the past, but in fact, that was a harbinger of things to come. I
0: mean, it was clear, though, at the time, wasn't it, that Vladimir Putin didn't think he'd gone away. He sort of installed himself as prime minister while Medvedev kept his chair warm.
3: Well, actually, the dynamics of the offices of the prime minister and office of the president in those days were not that clear. And it seemed that for quite some time that President Medvedev might actually take a course of his own. And that especially came to a head during the Libya crisis. And as you will remember, it was the decision of President Medvedev to abstain during the vote in the United Nations Security Council when it came to authorizing a need to action in Libya.
0: Over the last 16 months on our program, The Foreign Desk, we've spoken to a lot of current and former office holders in the Baltic states in particular and in Eastern Europe more generally. And a line that we have kept hearing, and I'd be interested in your opinion on it, given you worked in Moscow, that Russia is not fundamentally a European country, that they don't think like Europeans, that they have a completely different view of the world and and we were kind of kidding ourselves post the Cold War that Russia ever could become just another European country. Do you think that's the case? Is there something fundamentally, I guess, other about Russia?
3: I don't think so. And I think that the history of Russia proves it. If you look at the period, you know, the second half of the 19th century, If you look at the period after the Russian defeat in the Crimean War, when Alexander II basically instituted the great reforms, you can see how quickly the civil society in Russia can organize and can pick up and can actually have also an influence on politics. So in that sense, the hope in the 90s was that this period of glasnost and perestroika, which was started already by Gorbachev, would then continue in creating a new Russia, a Russia that we would be able to work with. And in fact, President Putin during his first mandate did actually act like a sensible person. Mm -hmm. And I still remember the first meeting between President Putin and President Bush in Slovenia. In those days, we were speaking about the spirit of Bardo. As you know, President Bush famously looked into the eyes of President Putin in Slovenia and then found a sense of his soul. It is easy for us now to look skeptically at that time, at that period. But you have to remember that President Putin was afterwards the first person to actually call President Bush to express his sympathy Mm -hmm. after the attack of 9-11. So something changed. And I believe that what changed was that President Putin was not exactly enamored with the negative assessments of Russian parliamentary and presidential elections during his first term. He also, it seems to me, took very personally the fact that the Cossack plan for the solution of the Transnistria issue didn't go through. And then you started having some sort of a dynamic which could be also observed through the OSCE, the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. We like to say that the OSCE is the barometer for the foreign policy situation in the Euro-Atlantic space. And if you see how the Russians started behaving within the OSCE, you can actually start gauging the changes in their attitude towards the West. But I don't think that anything regarding Russia in those days was predetermined. Things could have taken a different turn. But unfortunately, I have to say that President Putin has turned out to be a big disappointment. That
0: was Andrei Benedicik speaking to us at the NATO summit in Vilnius. This is The Foreign Desk, and our final guest is Daria Kalinyuk, executive director of the Anti-Corruption Action Centre in Ukraine. I began by asking her whether there was much frustration in Ukraine about the somewhat woolly language in the NATO summit communique regarding Ukraine's aspirations to join the alliance.
1: A lot of frustration. We know that Russia is admitted to be the largest threat to NATO. Russia is publicly saying that it is fighting NATO. But it's Ukrainian soldiers who are dying. And these are Ukrainian civilians who are terrorized every day with air raids from Russia. So we expect more leadership, more commitment, more resilience and more bravery from NATO and particularly from their very important NATO countries like the U.S.
0: (laughs) Well, yeah, the most important NATO country, the U.S., and and you will have heard what President Biden said as he prepared to leave for the summit. I don't think, he said, there is unanimity in NATO about whether or not to bring Ukraine into the NATO family now at this moment in the middle of a war. I can take a wild guess as to how that went over with Ukrainians, but what did you think?
1: Well, we all understand that behind this wording of unanimity, the excuse is hiding and the excuse for President Biden and for the United States. Because until the very end, we heard that even countries like Turkey or France, which were usually very skeptical about inviting Ukraine to NATO or new members to NATO, they were fine with the language, clear message of the NATO summit inviting Ukraine to NATO. And it was Biden and the U.S. presidency which was hesitating and we are wondering what are the real reasons for that is it the fear of ukraine winning is it the fear of russia escalating is it a fear of russia collapsing or is it the hope that through some back channel communications and negotiations with kremlin a certain level of deal of peace deal can be achieved if it is the latter and we are worried that it could have been the latter mm. It's a very dangerous situation not only for Ukraine but for the entire NATO. We've already witnessed so called peace deal negotiations with Russians during 2015 2016. It was Minsk and Minsk II negotiations where Ukraine was not allowed even to ask for weapons and Ukraine was forced to do these negotiations with Kremlin puppets who were called themselves as the leaders of Donetsk and Lugansk Republics, and what did it lead us to? It led Ukraine actually living inside the genocidal war. And if somebody thinks that any negotiations with Kremlin will lead to end of war, it will just buy time for Kremlin to prepare for the new war. And You know, we can talk a lot about ramping up production, about NATO preparing its posture, strengthening itself. It takes quite a long time to ramp up production of artillery, probably a year or so. It takes probably a couple of years to ramp up production of tanks and fighter jets. But how are we going to ramp up production of Ukrainian soldiers? We are limited. And I'm concerned, I'm a mother of two sons, my eldest son is 11. He was 2 when this war just started in 2014. So am I producing soldiers for the new war? Or I can bring hope to the new generation of Ukrainians, to the kids which are now 15, 16, that they will not be protecting NATO, the most powerful aliens, military aliens in the world, from its the most largest threat. So are we expecting Ukrainian generation who are kids now to protect NATO. And, you know, these are mixed feelings I'm bringing back to Ukraine. No clarity from uh, NATO. No leadership from the most powerful NATO leaders. And that's disappointing.
0: Do you think it's also important that NATO starts thinking about beyond the war in terms of a, I guess, judicial repudiation or even punishment of the Putin regime. You'll, you'll have seen in Vilnius, I'm sure, that huge banner hanging over a skyscraper overlooking downtown Putin. The Hague is waiting for you. How important do you think, in terms of producing long term peace, some kind of judicial redress is going to be?
1: I've seen this poster in Vilnius. I haven't seen similar posters in France or in Germany or in the US. <laughs> Definitely, for Ukrainians, for us, it is important part of victory to have justice and to hold accountable all those military criminals which are kidnapping our children, which were torturing our civilians, raping our women, and firing missiles into the hospitals, kindergartens, and schools. So victory without bringing justice and punishing all those criminals is impossible, because If Russians will be let unpunished for what they've done, their imperialistic, chauvinistic mentality will keep dominating.
0: That was Daria Kalinyuk, Executive Director of the Anti-Corruption Action Centre in Ukraine. That's it for this episode of The Foreign Desk. We'll be back next week and look out for The Foreign Desk Explainer, available every Wednesday. The Foreign Desk was produced by Emma Searle and Christy O'Grady. Christy also produces The Foreign Desk Explainer. To contact the Foreign Desk team, you can email emma at es at monocle.com and don't forget to subscribe to Monocle magazine and our free daily email bulletins by heading to our website at monocle.com. From me, Andrew Muller, thank you very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye.